Um, okay, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, there should be some version of red. My daughter, you know, is an artist. I realize it's not red, and there's controversy. Is it, is it red? Is it maroon? Is it, I, I don't, it's some version of red, but there's a red Bible around you. Go ahead and grab that this morning, um, and you can use that. Um, John chapter 4, I want to read this uh, long section here, um, this narrative, as we move through our series, continuing our series, Encountering Jesus. So we'll start in verse 4, and we'll read down through verse 26. He, being Jesus, had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and just ask God to speak to us. We believe that we have a heavenly father who longs to speak to his children. So just take a moment of silence, take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out, and invite God to speak to you this morning. And then I'm going to pray for us as we jump into this very familiar text.
Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak to us this morning. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear? We, your servants, are listening. And would you just cut through the noise, the distractions, the hardness of our hearts, the, the blindness of our minds and our souls? God, it gets so clouded as we live in this world, um, and we encounter so many different opinions, ideologies, voices that are crying out for us to listen and heed and obey. And we pray that today that you would give us the humility to listen to your voice as you speak to us by your spirit. Help us to respond. Uh, And as Jesus says, go and do likewise. We pray this in his name. Amen. So many of you know I have uh, four children. And uh, they're all actually, three of them are in this service. So I'll be careful how I say this, this service. Um, but uh, I find as a dad, as my kids get older, so my, uh, two of my three, uh, four children are now teenagers, I am doing nothing basically but reminding them all the time about the basics, like the basics of hygiene, right? Like just trying to remind them about hygiene, remind them about what's true, what they already know. I feel like being a parent in a lot of ways is just like me trying to remind my kids about the most basic things. And, and they're great listeners. I, mean, I have great kids. I'm thankful for them. Uh, but they, as they get older, are starting to, like, wave me off. Like, do you guys do this when you were to, like, wave me off? Like, yeah, 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 I know. Like, I've heard you say this a thousand times. So I feel like this is my typical daily interactions. My wife or I trying to parent them and instruct them and them kind of like saying, yeah, we've heard that before, right? And you know how it is, like when you're a teenager, I get it. Like I remember as, as you get into your teen years, like your IQ in your own eyes goes up and your parents kind of go down and kind of comes down here. And then you hit like your adult years and you begin to realize like, oh, like my parents did know a couple of things. So I'm like waiting for that day when they, I'm like, you know, I, I've, I've graduated high school. You haven't, right? Like I've got a doctorate. You don't, like I know some things about life that you don't know. But, but like, it's amazing how uh, I feel like, it, it, you know, things just get so familiar that um, they often kind of can dismiss some of the things that, that we say that are really important. I feel like this story in John chapter 4 is very similar. This is a story that if you grew up in church or grew up around church, you have undoubtedly heard dozens of sermons on. You've heard this talked about many, many times about this, what's been called the Samaritan woman at the well. And so what I want to invite you to do, I just um, I don't know if you're, uh, any of you are big Malcolm Gladwell fans. He's a social psychologist. Uh, I love Malcolm Gladwell books. He, just, uh, he wrote a book a couple years ago called Blink, and it's about kind of rapid cognition and how our brains, we have this like part of our brain where we form fast judgments about things, like snap judgments, like blink judgments about things, and, um, and based on our past experiences. And it, it's a really fascinating uh, look at how that happens and the, kind of the good of that and the bad of that. And I want to invite you to like slow down and short circuit that part of your brain that thinks you know what's going on in this passage, to step back and give some space. And what I want to do is kind of invite you out of maybe the ways you've heard that before. And I want to um, bring you into the larger context, which I know for some of you, you will just like glaze over um, and this will not be exciting to you. But it is so important. If you're going to understand the point of this passage, you've got to understand what's happening socially and culturally and historically here so that you can enter into the text the way that th- this woman would have entered into this story. And this is, this is the longest narrative account of a conversation between Jesus and any person in the New Testament. And I find it very instructive that he does that with a woman. A long conversation about what it means to be a disciple, about meaning and purpose and doubt and all these kinds of things. Um, Jesus is trying to show us something here. And so I want to just 
invite you to step away from any preconceived notions, filters, biases that you may have, and just listen to this text with fresh eyes and ears. And I want to present this to you like a story. It's a story, like a narrative. Three basic scenes of this narrative. Start, scene one, Jesus dismantling cultural barriers to the good news of who he is and his kingdom come. Let's start there in verse four. He had to travel through Samaria. <laughs> like, we could just stop there and pre- this could be a whole sermon. He had to travel through Samaria. Now, we often just skip through this as if it's just like, you know, advancing the narrative plot. But this was so radical, so crazy and insane that Jesus would feel like he has to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria, uh, Jesus goes to this town in Samaria called Sychar. Can we throw that map up on the screen? So I want to orient you just geographically. Jesus is now in the south in Judea. A lot of his ministry is done in the north in Galilee. He travels south to uh, Judea and is now on his way back north. Most Jews who were traveling north from Judea to Galilee would not have felt like they have to travel through Samaria. Matter of fact, they'd say we have to avoid Samaria. They would have taken a detour to the left and followed the Jordan River downstream to Jerusalem or the right to the coastline, hugged the coastline of the Sea of Galilee until they reached the hill country of Galilee. These routes would take three to four times as long as if you just went straight through Samaria, right? Like, you know what this is like, right? Like, there are boundaries in parts of our city. Like, people are like, don't go straight through there. Like, we all have those places that we avoid um, going straight through. That's what's happening here. Um, And what's interesting is that, that John would say he had to travel through Samaria. Like, I find this fascinating. Jesus doesn't have to do anything. Jesus doesn't have to go in there. Matter of fact, Jesus says, I do what I do because I'm following the Father's will. Chapter three, he's talking about the Holy Spirit with Nicodemus, and he says, the Spirit blows where it wills. And so Jesus here is basically saying, I go where the Spirit leads. And right now, the Spirit is telling me, I must go through through Samaria. When, When John says, Jesus has to go somewhere, he's drawing our attention and saying, pay attention. When Jesus says he has to do something, the man who doesn't have to do anything but chooses what he does according to the Father's plan, he's wanting to intentionally teach us something, to model something for us. So why is it that Jesus has to travel through Samaria? What is he doing in taking his disciples through Samaria? Here's the the big idea for this first scene, is that Jesus is dismantling cultural barriers of dehumanization exclusion, and alienation. And not just dismantling those barriers, he's dismantling them so that he can build bridges of grace and dignity and relationship and reconciliation. So what are the barriers that Jesus is up against? And this is where it's important to know the historic context, right? Because we kind of gloss over this or assume we know this, but these are deep, pervasive, powerful, multi-generational forces that would have kept these people apart and would have led Jesus and every other good Jew who wanted to be clean in that day around Samaria, right? So there's three barriers that Jesus is dismantling and deconstructing here for his disciples. The first is the most obvious one probably that's been talked about a lot, the racial and ethnic barrier, right? There's a racial and ethnic barrier. Notice in Jesus' conversation, again, Jesus and his humanity is walking a long way. He gets tired. 
He comes to this famous site, Jacob's Well. You can read about this in Genesis. Famous site. We'll talk more about that later. And he's just like, I'm tired. I want a drink. And he encounters this woman who we call the Samaritan woman. Now, she asked this question because she knew that there was something off about Jesus engaging her. Verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Now, the history of Jewish Samaritan contempt goes back 700 years. If you want to read about the beginnings of it, 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18. Let me just kind of tell you the quick story. In 721 BC, the Assyrians, which were the world power at that time, uh, they had the strongest military, the most prosperous nation at that time. Uh, they invade Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. So at this time, Israel's divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom with Samaria and the southern kingdom with Judah and Jerusalem. And what, what happened in those days, if you were looking to conquer um, and colonize a group of people, you would essentially deport their elite ruling class, bring them back to your capital city, put, enroll them in your educational systems and your cultural systems, and essentially colonize them by teaching them the ways of your culture. And over a generation, that kind of rapid assimilation is how you would come to dominate a group of people. And so they did that. They, they settled the land. They deported the majority of the ruling class, sent them back to Babylon and other big cities in the Assyrian Empire. And then they repopulated with some of the other Jews that were left in, uh, in this area, in Samaria. They settled the land with foreigners from Assyrian cities. And these, some of these foreigners intermarried with Jews, with the Jews who weren't deported. So when the Jews came out of exile, the rest that came out of exile and returned to their land, generations later, they were like, wait a minute, these Jews have married these pagans, this, this isn't right. And they began to demonize the Samaritans. They literally started calling them Samaritans, which is a pejorative term, and they demonized them as racial half-breeds whose religion was contaminated by non-Jewish ideas and practices. And there's all kinds of violence, escalating violence between the Jews and the Samaritans over the course of the next several centuries. And it kind of culminated in 400 BC when one of the Jewish military rulers destroyed the Samaritan temple that was built on Mount Gerizim where they worshiped Yahweh. And by Jesus's day, this contempt and this hatred ran so deep. The Jews considered the Samaritans the other. They considered them unclean. They considered them contaminated, dirty, half-breeds, and they avoided contact with them at all costs. So when Jesus shows up and he says, I have to walk through Samaria to his disciples, you can imagine maybe his disciples just use your imagination going, Jesus, Jews don't walk through Samaria. Why are we doing that? That's not what a good Jew does. Or maybe they were more subtle, like we can kind of do sometimes, and say, hey, that area is kind of sketch. Don't walk through Samaria. So I want you to see, although it's really interesting that the author, John, draws our attention to this fact that she knows, Jesus knows, and he puts it in Holy Scripture so we can know that Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus here is confronting not just personal acts of prejudice and bigotry, right? He is confronting what has now become a communal sin, what has now become an institutional sin, what has now become a structural sin an institutional sin, a cultural disorder. 
They don't even have to think about it. They, don't, they just blink, and they don't walk through Samaria. This is this pattern, the sin that needs to be named here. It's not just a sin of prejudice. It's, it's, it's an entire way of life for a community. The better terminology, and I'm borrowing this from the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volv, who's so helpful on this, a man who grew up experiencing war-torn Yugoslavia and has written uh, deeply about his experiences of violence. He calls it the sin of exclusion. And I think, that, I think that he's right. This is the sin of exclusion writ large on an entire community. And I want to just talk about, just briefly, how this plays itself out, because I think this cycle that we see operating with the Jews is the same cycle that we see operating really in every culture and every society, including our own to this day. I, I call this the cycle of exclusion, okay? Here's how the cycle of exclusion works, and this is why, again, it's important context to know why this was so radical, why they were so amazed, and why they thought that Jesus had a demon when he said, let's go through Samaria. It starts with superiority, right? Like one group or one individual says, I am better than you. We are better than you. And, and really, um, it's an identity statement, right? Like the history of conflicts, if you look at the conflicts between different ethnic groups, different races, it really comes down to an identity statement. I am better. I am superior than you, than this group, than this society. And that leads then to the second um, piece of the cycle where we then dehumanize other people, right? We dehumanize those that we think we're better than. I mean, the Jews literally thought of the Samaritans as, we said, contaminated, dangerous, unclean people that you don't have any contact with. God does not love them. They are foolish. I mean, there are widely known sayings from Jewish wisdom literature that announce this reality. God hates the foolish people who live in Samaria. Their daughters, and I'm reading you the clean version. Okay, this is, but the clean version says their daughters are unclean from birth. You remember the story in John chapter 8 when Jesus is talking to the Jews and they tell him he has a demon? What do they call him? Samaritan. Are you a Samaritan? Are you crazy? Like Samaritan was an epithet. It was a racial ethnic slur lobbed at Jesus by the Jews. That's how dehumanization begins to work in any relationship or in any group of people is that you have a dehumanization of language you are less than me. I am better. You are less. You are inferior. And there's kind of a negative identity of not only am I better, but I'm not you, right? Like the Jews would pray these prayers. God, I thank you that you've not made me a Samaritan. God, I thank you that you've not made me a woman. These negative identity statements that were prayed daily in the synagogue that reinforced a pattern and a way of looking at the world that says, these are the others, these are bad, they're not on the same level with me, we're not equal, we're better than them. And of course, like theologically, what's happening there is a desecration of the image of God. This is identity theft, right? Like, we are, we are an individual, a group, a society, when they begin to think this way and act this way, they're robbing others of their image-bearing essence, robbing each other of the fact that you are created in the image of God to be like him. Genesis chapter 1, let us make mankind, all human beings, in the image of God, to reflect God and to represent God throughout the world. Every color, every nation created in the image of God. But what happens when we begin to think we're better, we begin to act as if we're better, 
we dehumanize, we degrade, and we use language that's aimed, it's propaganda, a language that's aimed at reminding people they're not equal with us. And you see this around the world that demonizes, that villainizes, that animalizes, that otherizes people. And this happens in every culture, right? It's not just in America. This happens in every society, in every culture ever. There has been this going on since the beginning of time, right? Like we see examples of this in the 20th century. We know historically this happened in Nazi Germany with Aryan supremacy, right? They referred to Jews as rats. They're animals. They're not even human beings. We saw the Hutus called Tutsis cockroaches in the, Roman geno- the, the Rwandan genocide. In our own country, obviously, we know that enslaved African Americans were, fer- were referred to as beasts of burden, as animals, as three-fifths human, who are intellectually inferior, morally lazy, dangerous, deceptive. I mean, this hurts my heart to say this, but this is how we talked, and these were the laws of our country for many generations. Asian Americans were labeled yellow peril. We, we, use, we throw casually words around like Chinese flu and Kung flu. We have our own, like Asian Americans in this church, going to the store, being assaulted with words like that continues to portray Asian people, their culture, customs, as unsafe, unwelcome, dirty, contaminated, demonized. That dehumanization, that language forms reality. And then it justifies exclusion and eventually violence, right? Like all of that is just kind of prelude to exclusion, to not associating with them. I mean, the Jews would exclude, and this was mutual, right? The Samaritans did the same thing. They would exclude them socially. They didn't walk through their land. They wouldn't share a meal or a cup because that would make you unclean and you couldn't enter the temple and worship God. They excluded them religiously. They viewed them as schismatics who they called lion proselytes who were less than fully Jewish, not legitimate Jews in terms of their worship of Yahweh. The Samaritans then developed their own temple system, their own interpretation of the Pentateuch, their own vision of the Messiah and when and how he would come. And they also excluded them institutionally. Their testimony was inadmissible in Jewish court. So this exclusion that we see, it's systematic, it's intentional, it's powerful, it's pervasive, it is enduring. I mean, think about this, 700 years of that. And Jesus shows up and says, I must travel through Samaria. Do you get a sense for like how crazy that would have been? Like, like his folks would have been calling him a liberal. <laughs> or a fundamentalist, depending on how you look at that. This is the sin of exclusion. Miroslav Volf goes on to say this. An advantage of conceiving sin as the practice of exclusion is that it names as sin what often passes as virtue, especially in religious circles. In the Palestine of Jesus' day, sinners were not simply the wicked who were therefore religiously bankrupt, but also social outcasts, people who practiced despised trades, Gentiles and Samaritans, those who failed to keep the law as interpreted by a particular sect. A righteous person had to separate herself from the latter. Their presence defiled because they were defiled. Jesus' 
Table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners then, a fellowship that indisputably belonged to the central features of his ministry, offset this conception of sin. Since he who was innocent, sinless, and fully within God's camp transgressed social boundaries that excluded the outcast, these boundaries themselves were evil, sinful, and outside of God's will. By embracing the outcast, Jesus underscored, get this, the sinfulness of the persons and the systems casting them out in the first place. That kind of exclusion always leads to violence. Like there's like the violence in our hearts as we look at other people and we say, you're not equal, you're not worthy, I'm better than you, eventually works itself into a system of violence, a system of resentment and violence and then retaliation against that violence and then a new group of oppressors and then more violence, more exclusion. This is the cycle of history, right? Threats of violence, violence, endless cycles of retaliation. An interesting place we see that on display in uh, Luke chapter 9. Jesus sends his disciples into Samaria to prepare one of his missionary journeys. And they get rejected. And notice what they say when they come back after they've been, after their hospitality has been rebuffed. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? I mean, just like, Think about that for a second. And Jesus turns and rebukes them and says, no, that's not my way. But like, how crazy is it that that was just normal? Like, they didn't even think a thing about it. You called on fire on your enemies. They're, they're, they're nothing. The fact that that would be natural and normal is the problem. And Jesus says, that's not my way. So this is a huge barrier Jesus crosses over. Jesus crosses over the, the gender barrier. We'll pick up speed a little bit. The gender barrier, right? Like verse 27, the disciples were amazed, not just that he's talking to a Samaritan, they're amazed that he's talking to a woman. Because in those days, men and women were not considered equals ontologically, spiritually, or legally. According to Jewish custom, men, especially rabbis, weren't supposed to address women in public settings. There usually was the assumption of sexual intent. And so it was kind of a faux pas for especially a rabbi like Jesus to be talking to a woman. The third barrier that Jesus crosses is the moral barrier, right? The moral barrier. If you notice, this woman is at the well at what time? Noon. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but like, you know how it is here this week? Like, you don't go outside between noon and four, you're gonna die, right? Like, it's that hot. Like, imagine like an arid desert climate. Like, you water, you go out and you fetch water in the morning or in the evening, but not in the middle of the day. To be at the well alone at the middle of the day meant you were excluded from the community. You were stigmatized. You were, you know, a suspect character. And, and that's exactly what this woman was. The, the well is a site of community. The well is a site of belonging. The well is a place of relationship and gossip and where you tell stories about your grandparents and your kids. And it's a place of community. But notice this woman is excluded from that community on suspicion because she's had five husbands. Now, I just want to say this because, I, again, I've heard lots of sermons, I've even preached sermons on this text before. And typically, this narrative is taught in such a way to describe the woman at the well as a prostitute, as an adulteress, or as a whore, right? Like that's the language that's used. I've heard that used from pastors. Now what's interesting is that might actually say more about our cultural biases and about us than it does about her. 
Notice what Jesus says. All he says is you've had five, five husbands, verse 18, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. There's no evidence that this woman, that her sin is the cause of her marriage's ending. Notice Jesus doesn't say, you sinned and therefore you have had five husbands. In those days, again, a man could divorce a woman, literally, the law read, for any reason. Like if the woman overcooked his breakfast, he could say, you're out, you're, you're done. If he didn't like her hair, he could say, I'd divorce you, and she had to acquiesce. Women didn't have a lot of vocational opportunities or legal rights, and so they were often forced to depend on men economically. So who knows why she's living with this man, but you can imagine that it might not just be as simple as she's an adulteress. And notice, even in Jesus' imitation, he doesn't address any specific sin like he does with other people. Maybe her husband died. Maybe he cheated on her. Maybe he sent her away. Maybe he died in war. We don't know. But whatever the cause, the community is operating off this assumption that she is unclean. And that was a barrier for somebody like Jesus. And yet he just walks right through it. Now, I want to make a couple of just quick applications. Uh, first thing that I, want to, I just want to draw our attention to is that, like Jesus, we have to travel through our Samaria, right? We have to travel. We have to walk. We have to do this work of dismantling cultural barriers to build bridges of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and reconciliation, Pastor Eugene Cho, um, I love in, in a sermon on this text, says this, um, we can talk all day about tearing down barriers. We can talk about reconciliation. We can talk about justice. We can talk about sharing the good news of Jesus with people who are different than us. But it's just talk. We can speculate, he says. We can theologize. There are lots of books written about this stuff, right? We can liturgize and we can pray prayers and do confessions in here. We can sing about how great this diverse community of God is supposed to be. We can host conferences and workshops, and Lord knows we host so many workshops and conferences on this stuff, right? Like, to, like conference out on this. And yet never actually walk through Samaria. We've got to walk. We've got to take action. We've got to do and not just talk about, speculate, pray about, think about, discuss. We've actually got to, like Jesus, walk through Samaria. The second thing I want to draw your attention to is the other part of that. Like Jesus, we have to travel through Samaria. We have to recognize what Samaria is for us. We've got to do some work to reflect on. I just gave you a long history of how Jew and Samaritan works. What does that look like for you? What have you learned? How have you learned to treat others with a sense of superiority? How have you learned to dehumanize others, maybe in subtle ways you're not even aware of? Who are your others? Who do you avoid? Who do you speak about with degrading language? Who do you, as Volv goes on to say, exclude from the company of your fellow humanity because they're not worth your time or, you know, whatever? We've got to do some work personally in our hearts, in our families to figure out why is it, as Dr. King said, that Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in the country. We're talking about the church. Why is it we're so divided? Why is it we still have these others, we still have these challenges, and we've got to repent 
of a sense of superiority, whether we're cognizant of it or not. We privilege and prize our own ways of doing things over those of others, and it drives us apart. We dehumanize others through these barriers, and they must be removed. They must be repaired. But we have to see them before we can deal with them. They're often hidden, right? Like that's what the psalmist would say, Lord, cleanse me from my hidden faults. Like I can't see them. They're invisible. They're too deep. They're unconscious in automatic ways that I can't see. Lord, open up my eyes. Search me, O God, the psalmist says. Know my anxious heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I can't see it by myself. I need God. I need other people to show me. That's why Jesus says, get the speck out of your own eye before you take the log, try to take the log out of somebody else's. It's so pervasive. And that's why it's so ironic and, and kind of sad, but like it makes me feel good. The, the, the most confused peoples, people in this story, it, it, they're the disciples. <laughs> like we are the disciples. You realize that, right? Like we're the disciples. We're the ones that are like, what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you talking to that person? You're crazy. Like that is us, right? Like we don't get it. They're confused. And they don't get it the rest of the New Testament. That's why they have to be called out over and over and over again in almost every epistle about the Jew-Gentile thing because they weren't living in unity because they were excluding one another. And it was so hardwired in. And so we need to be asking the question, like, who's not here? Who's not here around our dinner table? Jesus said, when you throw a banquet, don't throw a party for those who can repay you, who look like you, share your same socioeconomic bracket, vote like you, think like you, come from the same ethnic or racial group as you. When you throw a party, go out into the highways and the byways. Get the strangers, get the poor, get the lame, get those who can offer you nothing in return and fill your dinner table with them. That's what Jesus says. So who's not around our dinner tables and why? What is that keeping us apart? Well, we could talk a lot about historical factors, right? We could talk about the way that our neighborhoods are set up. We could talk about redlining. We could talk about restrictive covenants. We could talk about housing discrimination and how that determines not just racial and ethnic, but economic lines in our city. I mean, there are lots of reasons why we are apart. I read recently the New York Times had um, a, what they call a political bubble calculator where you can put in your zip code and it tells you what percentage of your neighborhood voted Democrat or Republican in the last election. In my zip code, 46208, 85% of my neighbors voted Democrat last election. Now, I'm not making a political statement, but I'm just saying there is some serious ideological self-sorting going on right now. We don't want to be around people who think differently than us, who vote differently than us, right? Like the social forces are pulling us into these bubbles and saying, demonize them, write them off. They're not worthy of your time and attention. They're crazy, right? Whether it's the right wing or it's the liberals, like all of the language even is so dehumanizing. We've got to become aware of how this works. We've got to see this in our own life. That's why we need a community that's diverse to help us do that work. If you've not had a chance, I just wanna give you a practical, like something to do. Like after the first service, somebody's like, okay, I get it, but like, give me some, what do I do? Like I see the problem, what do I do? If you are not involved in our poorhouse ministry, you should be, okay? Poorhouse, we do something called the Welcome Home Team. Poorhouse is a large nonprofit in the city. We move our homeless neighbors off the street. Every Saturday, we are moving multiple homeless folks off of our street and helping find them permanent housing and just seeking to bless and to love them and get in relationship with them. 
a couple of weeks ago, um, Christian and I, uh, one of our deacons, were at uh, one of these movements. And I've done many of these movements, um, and, and this happens kind of every time. I, I, get, I get into the space with people that I, I wouldn't normally, honestly, be mixing, mixing it up with. I'm, like, I, I'm living in broader, but I'm on the Near East side. Getting into a home, just seeking to have conversation. And what begins to immediately rise up within me, and I'm just being as vulnerable as I can be, is like judgmental thoughts. It's like, why are they doing it that way? That's not how you parent a kid. Like, there's kids running wild over this apartment. And we're trying to move them in, half clothed. I'm just like, what are you doing? And then, then, then this sweet grandmother is just screaming at these kids because she is so desperate to just get them to calm down with these guests in her home. And then I immediately feel shame. I'm like, well, am I being racist right now? Am I, am I, am I judging this woman who is just doing the best that she can? Do I know her story enough to even have these feelings? Why do I have these feelings right now? I shouldn't have these feelings. And yet, at the same time, what wells up in me is compassion. I'm like, I, I want to love this woman. I'm laying hands on her. We're praying for her. We're providing food and supplies to help get her set up. She's in tears as we're sharing this beautiful moment of community together. Like, where else can you experience? I mean, I think some of the barriers that we experience now are not so much like uh, uh, just racial or um, ethnic. I think in broader people, everybody knows that's kind of wrong. They're probably more like political and ideological and class-based here. And I was feeling all of those things in that moment. We need spaces like that where God can do this deep work of excavation. It's not gonna happen by reading a book. It's going to happen as we walk through our Samarias. We open up our hearts to people that created in the image of God, that God loves, that God longs to reconcile to himself and to community. Let me just begin to close. Just let me briefly sketch the rest of this encounter. So we saw this cycle of exclusion. We see the dynamics of how exclusion works. But notice how Jesus breaks that cycle. Jesus reverses and kind of inverts that cycle with a cycle of embrace, right? A cycle of embrace. Rather than superiority, Jesus enters in with humility, right? The one who knew he was God. Here's the crazy thing. We, get, we have a superiority complex, or I say I do, because I feel inferior. When I feel inferior, I want to assert my superiority over other people. I'm desperately insecure. I know you guys probably can't relate. Jesus, knowing he's God, Philippians 2 says, empties himself and takes all of his glory and puts it underneath us and humbles himself, Philippians 2 says, even to the point of death on a cross. He enters into flesh, sinful human flesh. Jesus takes on flesh and he dies for his enemies. That's humility, Philippians says. Jesus, being superior, acts the part of the inferior, and he flips the script of hospitality. This woman thought, I'm a, I'm a sinful, unclean Samaritan woman. I should be serving this Jewish rabbi. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to give you a drink. I'm going to play host. I'm going to play host. I'm going to be the hospitable one. Second thing he does is he restores dignity. He rehumanizes her. He looks at her. He has a conversation with her that's not sexual in nature. I'm not here for your body. I'm here for your whole person, Jesus says. Jesus looks right into her pain. 
You know what I think is going on in the whole thing about the husbands? Because it sounds kind of harsh, like Jesus is trying to like drop a, you know, a bomb on this woman. I think all that Jesus is simply saying is, I see your story. I see it. I see your pain. I know how much upheaval this must be in your life. You've had five husbands. You're living with a guy now that's not even your husband. You look like you're in a desperate place. I see you, and I know you, and I love you, and I want to just acknowledge your story. And that's why she goes, and she's so amazed. She says, here's a guy who told me everything I ever did. He knows me. He knows my story, and he loves me. Now, I'm not saying she's not a sinner. I'm not saying she didn't have other sin in her life, but the core thing Jesus is doing here is restoring the image of God in her. You matter to God. God sees you. God loves you. God wants to be with you. He recognizes her humanity and says, we are on the same level here. I want to create space for just a relationship with you. I want to hear your story. I want to offer you water, but not just any water. I want to offer you the living water of myself. I want to help you drink. Man, you are trying to be satisfied everywhere in all of these places that are never going to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Let me give you water that will satisfy you forever. Drink deeply of my life and my death. That's why he talks about the hour of his death. He's talking about the hour is coming. His death, right? Like there is going to come a time very shortly when Jesus is going to be nailed to a cross and he will say, I thirst, right? I thirst. Jesus undergoes a spiritual thirst, a spiritual death so that we can experience living water. And Jesus says, if you will trust in me, if you will drink deeply from the well, I will satisfy with love and affection and all of these broken relationships and money and power and work, but all of these wells run dry. I am the only thing that can truly satisfy. Come and drink deeply of me. Jesus embraces this woman. He sacrifices himself. He absorbs all of the violence, all of the evil, all of the hatred, all of the contempt, all of the exclusion falls on him. And it leads to reconciliation and salvation, both for this woman and for her community. Look at the, the last picture here, scene three, the community transformed. It's beautiful. Verse 39, this woman goes and she says, come and see, which in John is the language of testimony. You can go back to John chapter one. When somebody says, come and see, it means they've encountered Jesus and they're inviting others. This is just evangelism. This is sharing what she's experienced with Jesus with her entire community. This woman who's been abused, exploited, marginalized, stigmatized, she's alone at the well, now goes back to these very people who have hurt her, and she begins to tell them about Jesus. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he had said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves, we know that this really is Savior of the world. That phrase, Savior of the world, is only used of Caesar in this culture. We know that you're the king of the world. And you've come and you care about Samaritans. You care about us. 
so fascinating. There's so much you could say about this, but just a couple of things. Notice this woman becomes the first evangelist in the book of John. Before the disciples, the disciples are all confused. They don't know what's going on. This woman is the first missionary in the book of John. Church tradition would later tell us that, and again, we don't know it's exactly true, but there's a feast day in uh, this woman's honor. It's called the Feast of Fotini. Church tradition would tell us, it's celebrated by, the, by our Orthodox brothers and sisters, um, that she would go on to be baptized by the apostles. Her name was changed to Fotini. She became an evangelist and eventually was martyred for her faith in Jesus, a significant figure in the early movement of Christianity. In her person, there is a witness to the multi-ethnic nature of the church. Think about the symbolism of a woman who is bicultural, multiracial. She is both Jew and Gentile, and she is coming into contact with Jesus. She is a picture of what the church is going to become. It's a foreshadowing Jew and Gentile represented in this woman's physical body. So cool, right? And then the last little illusion here um, that I find really fascinating is the illusion of Jacob's well. This draws on a rich Old Testament history of wells and encounters between bridegrooms and brides. Bridegrooms would come to wells in the Old Testament. They would go to a foreign land, think Jacob, Isaac, Moses. They would encounter a girl or girls at the well. The girl would rush home to bring news of this bridegroom's proposition to his family, to her family, and then a betrothal would happen between the bride and the bridegroom, and it would be consummated with a community meal and a celebration that there is going to be a marriage. Now, John chapters two through four is all about weddings and bridegrooms. It's not accidental. What Jesus is saying is, I am the bridegroom and I've come for my bride. I've come for you. God is seeking you out, Samaritans. He loves you. Those who are gonna worship me have to worship me in spirit and truth according to who I am. But if you'll trust in me, I'm going to create a healing. I'm gonna create salvation that you can't even imagine. And so this woman experiences the love of the true bridegroom that she never got from her other husbands. And she's healed. She's saved. But not only is she healed, this entire community experiences healing. There's community healing. I mean, think about this. For the first time in 700 years in Sychar, Jews and Gentiles sitting down and sharing a meal with one another without killing each other. I mean, that's like, like imagine like, the only thing I can think of is like, imagine this happening in modern day Palestine, Israeli context. They're feasting together because this is the good news of the kingdom of God. This is what God does. God comes and he crosses and he breaks down barriers keep people from experiencing the good news of his kingdom. Brings living water, and he invites us to join him in doing that. So the last thing I just want to say to you is, there's an invitation in here for us as the church to be doing this work. Jesus is showing his disciples, this is what I came to do. Now, you go and do likewise. And to us, he says the same thing. And, and here's the beautiful thing. We don't have to make this happen. Notice and I'm gonna credit my man Miles here for this insight in our preaching team meeting this week. Notice Jesus is here before any of the disciples. He's here doing this work before anybody else shows up. God is already doing this work in our city. God is already doing this work in the world. The question is, will we have the eyes to see and the courage and the grace 
to join him in his work. All we have to do is watch and join him as he does this work of reconciliation. This is what God has called us to be, to do as the church. And Jesus is already present in the power of his Holy Spirit, making it happen. The question is, will we recognize, will we repent when we're not doing that? And will we be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he did as he calls us into this work now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news, that your kingdom has come into the world, that you are a boundary-breaking, hostility-smashing, contempt-destroying God. You had to go through Samaria. You had to go through this forbidden, taboo place to show your disciples, to disrupt them out of their comfort, to show them what it looked like to truly see every human being as created in your image, In Christ, we know there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ. And God, you were showing your disciples a a glimpse of that, how radical that is and was then and how radical that is now. God, would you just, would you do this work in our hearts? This feels so hard, so impossible. We fail so much and we feel shame. God, teach us. Teach us how to do what you did. Teach us to, be with you to become like you in this way. We cannot do this apart from your power. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.